We are continuing our series, Tuned In, The Gospel According to Paul. The book of Acts records the spread of the early church, and the second half of that book is focused primarily on Paul's ministry. It often records Paul preaching the gospel, and throughout the series we've been looking at um, how Paul presents the gospel. Um, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can go ahead and do that. Um, for many of us, the gospel is pretty straightforward. If we were to present the gospel in a nutshell, it would go something like this, that God loves us and we are created to have a relationship with God. Uh, we sin and that separates us from God and Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sin and if we believe in Jesus our relationship is restored and we go to heaven when we die and this is absolutely correct make Jesus your personal savior and lord and your relationship with God is restored and in the afterlife you will have the assurance of heaven but interestingly enough when Paul preaches he never presents the gospel this way he doesn't follow this outline, not one time. And now again, the gospel doesn't change, but the gospel does speak to each of us differently. And Paul was tuned in to his listeners. Paul shaped the gospel so his listeners could hear it. Trusting the Spirit was guiding him all along the way. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Part of the power of the gospel is its ability to speak to everyone. The gospel resonates with all of us, but it resonates with all of us differently. And that's not because the gospel is different, it's because we are different. Um, and this is true for people who haven't yet believed that the gospel can speak to them in a particular way, but it's also true for those of us who have come to faith already. The gospel has something particular to say to you in your present situation. The gospel is tuned in to us. It has something to say to you right now. Again, we're in Acts chapter 23. We've asked Carol Hill to read the scripture this morning. Carol, if you can make your way on up to the podium. As she does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so, Carol, whenever you are ready, please read from Acts chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Carol, thank you very much. You may be seated. Paul is speaking to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme Jewish uh, religious, political, and legal council, if you will. Um, And while they were under Roman authority, they still commanded significant power and influence. Now, the Sanhedrin, as the passage said, uh, is composed or was composed of Sadducees and Pharisees. And for those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, uh, both of those groups at some time during Jesus's ministry Uh, opposed Jesus. And so because of that, we tend to see Sadducees, Pharisees, they were all the same. But they weren't the same. They were actually quite different, and they often did not get along. Uh, Sadducees were from the priestly aristocracy. They came from the upper class of Jewish society. They were often very, very wealthy. They were also Roman sympathizers. Um, Even under Roman rule, they pretty much maintained their social status, and so they were happy to go along with Roman rule because it helped them keep their social status. Um, They did not believe in a final resurrection Uh, in faith. They tend to be more conservative. They only considered the first five books of the Old Testament to be scripture. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were popular among the people. Uh, The Pharisees came from all walks of life. Any social class status, you you know, they came from all those walks. Um, They had no formal power. How they lived out their faith won the respect of the people, and that is where they got their influence from. They were anti-Rome. Pharisees looked for a cataclysmic event to end Roman rule. They believed that God was going to act against Rome, and they did believe in some kind of final resurrection. And for them, the entire Old Testament was scripture. They were a little bit more progressive. I know this is gonna be hard for, you to, for some of you to believe Pharisees progressive, what's up with that? But compared to the Sadducees, they were significantly more progressive in their interpretation of the Old Testament law. Um, Again, Pharisees and Sadducees often at odds with each other. One subject that was a center of strife was the whole idea of resurrection. You can even see this in Luke chapter 20. Um, The Sadducees challenged Jesus on the belief of a final resurrection. And Jesus uses the first five books of the Old Testament to refute them. And when he does, it's really interesting. It's like one of the, one or only two, one of two times when the Pharisees say something nice about Jesus. After Jesus refutes the Sadducees, the Pharisees tell Jesus, well said, teacher. 
And so um, even the Pharisees who weren't real happy with Jesus were happy with Jesus when he refuted the Sadducees. Now, Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin here. It's a tense situation. The high priest has Paul hit in the face. Um, Paul then rebukes the high priest, and then a bunch of people rebuke Paul, and it's getting out of hand, and it has barely even begun. Um, And it doesn't look like Paul is going to get a fair chance to speak. And without mentioning Jesus directly, Paul speaks the good news. And Paul does something that I think is really rather ingenious. He uses the enemy of my enemy is my friend approach with the Pharisees. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed about the resurrection, and Paul sides with the Pharisees, which then divides the Sanhedrin, and it divides it so badly that the commander has to bring in uh, some troops to get Paul out of there safely. It was unbelievable what Paul was able to do with one sentence. But if you look in your Bibles at verses 6 to 8 from the passage in Acts 23, where it says, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, and the Pharisees believe all these things. So Paul gets them arguing about the final resurrection and angels and spirits. And it is, it's it's an argument about worldview. What do you believe is real? Whether it's about faith or other things. And I think this particular argument about is there such a thing as resurrection from the dead? Are there spirits? Are there angels? All those kinds of questions. This argument is relevant to us. Again, we live in a empirical world. We don't even know the term. The term is so foreign to us, which is odd because it dominates how we view life. We do life empirically. Empiricism is the view that the only thing that matters are the things that we can verify and measure. And that worldview is totally assumed by all of us. We don't even think about it. If you can't verify something with empirical evidence, it's not that trustworthy. And the empirical method, one that all of us learned in science, it's a great method. Um, it's, empirical evidence is great for science, great for medicine. It does so much for us. Um, there's a reason it has the role in our world that it does, because it does so much good. Empirical evidence is great for science. But empiricism as a philosophy to live by, not always the best philosophy. That the only things that matter are what we can verify and measure. Is that really all that matters? It's not a great philosophy to live by. The gospel says there is more to life than what you can see. There is more to life than what you can see. There's this unseen reality of the gospel. As the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
There is more significance to, to your life than what you can see. When you get up, when you go to work, when you go to school, spend time with your friends, spend time with your family, uh, people you meet, things that you value. It, there's more to it than meets the eye. As Paul says, our momentary troubles can achieve an eternal glory. We are trained to focus on what we can see, but faith demands that sometimes we live based on something we can't see. As Paul says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You see, belief in the resurrection makes you God-approved. We live in a world where, you are all, where we are always proving ourselves. We are driven to be successful because if we are successful, we are worthy. We have self-worth. And again, success looks different to each and every one of us. What you are striving for success is probably different than what I'm striving for for success. But regardless of whatever our picture of success is, if we reach it, we can feel good about ourselves. We have this sense of worth. If you look at verse 1 of the passage um, from Acts 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now that was a provocative statement. The high priest responds by having Paul struck in the mouth. But just for a second, imagine if that statement was true of you. Put your name in that statement. Chuck, you have fulfilled your duty to God. Put your name in. You have fulfilled your duty to God. What if you could say that in all good conscience? What do you think you have to do yet for that to be true of you, to be approved by God, to fulfill your duty to God. I bet you can come up with a pretty long list of what you need to do to fulfill your duty to God. But it's as simple as believing in the resurrection Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. Now, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but it is simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are God approved. Period. End of story. The good news is there's more to life than what you can see. And belief in the resurrection, it makes you God approved. It also makes you God appointed. If you look at verse 11 from Acts 23 in the passage this morning, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Many of you know that Paul was about as anti-church as you can get early in his life. He persecuted the church. He stood in approval as a believer named Stephen was killed for his faith. 
But then Paul has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and God appoints Paul to spread the good news all over the Roman Empire, which he does. And at the end of this passage, Jesus tells him, you're not done yet. You must also testify about me in Rome. Like Paul, we are God-appointed. As it says in Romans chapter 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life. When you believe in the resurrection, God appoints you as his servant and you have a new life. And things will happen in your life that look mundane and routine, but they are not mundane and routine. Opportunities that come up. Things that don't turn out like you kind of hoped they would turn out. People that you meet. Places that you live. God is setting you in those circumstances for a reason. Something that you cannot see at the time. But if you look back at your life and reflect and begin to kind of connect the dots of how things work out. You can identify God at work. I like calling these times when you kind of start putting these dots together. Hey, you know, when this and this and this happened, that really set up for this and this and this to happen, which set up for this and this to this to happen. When you start putting those kinds of dots together, I call those experiences God winking at you. Where all of a sudden you're like, wow, yeah, this happened, this happened, this happened. Wow, that's really amazing. And God's like, yep, it was amazing. <laughs> and I've shared all sorts of these God winking at you stories with people over in different ways. Um, stories in my life, when I reflect on them, I see God was at work. How I got connected with the Reformed Church. I didn't grow up in it. Uh, how I met my wife. How I ended up here in Twin Falls. I look back at my life and I can see time and time and time again that God has set me to be here in this place at this time. And even a monotonous thing like the house I live in is a God-winking story. Uh, when we first moved here in 2003, Shannon and I lived Saratoga Apartments down the street here, down Grandview. Um, they were great apartments, great place to live. But Shannon and I, we were, really weren't used to um, apartment living. We had two young kids with us. And after living in the apartment for a year, we had a third child on the way. And after a year, we wanted to just get out of apartment living and get in a house. And um, we had a list of things that we were looking for in a home. Uh, Mike Erickson, some of you uh, knew him. He uh, used to attend here, lives in Boise now. Um, he did a great job. He was our realtor, did a great job showing us houses. I don't know how many houses poor Mike had to show us. I don't know if he showed us 10, 12, 15. It just seemed like this endless parade of going to home after home after home after home. And none of the homes really fit what we were looking for. And finally, after all of that, we were just ready to settle. We wanted out of apartment life. Um, and so Mike eventually showed us a home that in our estimation, it was good enough. It's good enough. Let's just get out, okay? Um, and so Shannon and I, were going to go through it one more time. And then we were going to talk with Mike about making an offer on it. And the night before we were going to do that, Shannon is looking through the newspaper. Um, I realize that ages us a little bit. But she was looking through the newspaper and uh, found this home that was listed. And she's like, check, it's got this and this and this and this and this and this. How come Mike hasn't shown us this home? And I said, I don't know. Let's ask him about it uh, when we see him tomorrow. 
But we were both just exhausted of going through. We didn't want to go through any more homes. We found that one that was good enough, and we were ready just to go, okay? And so next day, Mike, Mike takes us through the good enough home, and we're standing in front of that home um, talking about the strategy of the offer and probably did that for like 10, 15 minutes, strategizing how we want to put an offer on the home. And Mike finally just stops and he says, you know something, guys? Let me show you one more home. Would you like to guess which home it was? It was the home that Shannon looked at in the paper the night before. And we go to it, and we go through it, and we literally checked every one of our boxes of what we were looking for in a home. Minus one. There was one box we didn't get checked off. We wanted a house with a fireplace. This house didn't have a fireplace. So a couple years later, we bought an electric fireplace at Costco. It was all good. Um, <laughs> But it was the same price as the other house. It just had almost twice the square footage. And so we put an offer on it, and a month later, we're in the house. And I reflect upon the last 15 years and the relationships that we have developed because of where we live. See, because where you live dictates where your kids go to school. And I think about all the relationships we've developed with our, between where our kids go to school, all those school relationships. And I think about the relationships we've developed with people in our neighborhood. And then it's all because Mike said, let me show you one more house. And then I see, and every time I think about it, I just envision God winking at me. See, Chuck, I had it covered. When you believe in the resurrection, God appoints you as his servant, and you have a new life. Things will happen in your life that look mundane and routine. They are not mundane and routine. God is setting you in those circumstances for a reason. Something that you cannot even see at the time. You are God appointed. There is more to your life than you can see. And belief in the resurrection gives you God's assurance. If you look at verse 6 of the passage this morning, where it says, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul is later on in years at this stage in his life. And he finds himself later in life on trial which I'm not exactly sure what your retirement goals are, but being on trial is probably not one of them. And this is where Paul finds himself. And Paul has already been through a lot in his life. In a letter to the Corinthians, he shares that five different times he received a literal whipping of 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was pelted with stones. Three times he was shipwrecked. One time he spent a night and day on the open sea. Many times he went without sleep and without food and without shelter. And his life was always in danger. What kept him going? It was this hope. Hope in the resurrection of the dead. It gave him a sense of God's assurance that no matter what was happening to him, God was with him. As it says in Romans 8, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
If you believe in Jesus, that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then the Spirit of God lives in you. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus lives in you, he will give life to your body in the resurrection. And that is our hope. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. You are not as young as you used to be. Right? This is true. And this reality that you are not as young as, you're, as you used to be, um, it kind of feels different at different times in our lives. But yet it's always there. I remember when I turned 20, and I just remember thinking, wow, I'm not a teenager anymore. And I just felt so weird. Um, and, you know, you, just, you felt just a little older, just a little older. Not a teenager anymore. And then at some point in life, you have to work full-time, get a full-time job, and that really feels adult-ish. And you feel a little bit older. And then uh, for many of us, we get married. And then we're not single anymore. Wow, you feel a little bit older. And then for many of us, we have kids. And it's like, holy cow, now I'm a parent? And you feel, well, maybe a lot older. You feel a little bit older. Um, and then, you know, you hit your 30s. And, and your body starts to slow down. And maybe, hypothetically speaking, you're playing a game of lightning with your 10-year-old's basketball team. And going up for a jump shot, you tear your calf muscle. Again, theoretically speaking, um, you feel a little bit older. And then, you know, each time your kids hit a new stage of school, from elementary to, you know, junior high to high school, every time that happens, you feel a little bit older. And then 40s hit. You know, that's the age when you were 20 that seemed ancient. And then you're in it, and you feel a little bit older. And then your kids go off to college, and you have an empty nest, and you feel a little bit older. And then you realize one day that you're closer to your retirement years than you were your high school years. And you feel a little bit older. And then the 50, your 50s go by, and you're in your 60s, and you actually retire, and you've got to feel a little bit older. And then you're in your 70s and 80s, and I don't know what to tell you, but you probably feel a little bit older. Okay? And the more of these stages you go through, it feels like there are more years behind you than there are in front of you. And at some point, you may even feel like your best years are behind you. Belief in the resurrection gives you God's assurance that no matter where you are in any of these stages of aging, you have more years in front of you than you have behind you. And your best years are still in front of you. Your best years are still in front of you and you have more years ahead of you than behind you because of the hope of the resurrection. There is more to your life than what you can see. This unseen reality that God is actively interested in you. We are not living mundane lives. God is actively interested in us. We are a part of God's grand plan. Our accomplishments are not in vain. Our sufferings are not in vain. We are God approved. We are God appointed. And we have God's assurance. As it says in Romans 
Chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. It is God who justifies. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that's good news. So we, let's keep moving forward with confidence that God goes before us, that God follows behind us, and that God is with us. Your life has more significance than you've ever even begun to consider. There is more to your life than what you see. It's the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Please pray with me. And Lord, it is for this hope that we thank you. And I would ask that you would encourage each and every one of us this morning that whether life is going well or life is a struggle, that you are actively at work in us and you are working through us and you are among us. Lord, help us to see the things that we can only see by faith and help us to keep moving forward knowing that you are actively interested in our lives and are using us for your purposes. It's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Receive God's blessing. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.